Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of ground to cover today. And as always, Pop Culture Corner coming up at 2.30 during that segment of the program. Let us get right to it. We spent at least a portion of yesterday's program in live coverage about the collapse of the parking structure, or at least to be fair, the partial collapse of the parking structure at Bayshore Shopping Center. And, I mean, this it kind of touched a nerve with me because I grew up in Glendale and I lived in Whitefish Bay for 30 years, and I have parked in that parking structure on multiple occasions. There's a lawyer that I use that has an office in the buildings that are adjacent to the parking structure. If you've ever been to the Coles or the Five Guys or any of those stores there, that's that's one of the places you park. So it was kind of stunning to see that collapse. Now, the good news, and it is good news, is the fact that nobody was injured. It's almost a miracle it's almost a miracle that that would happen. I keep remembering back to a couple decades ago, and if you were a longtime resident of the area, you will remember the first day of Summerfest a number of years ago, and you had the giant piece of concrete which fell off the side of the O'Donnell Park parking structure right as a couple people were exiting the structure, and, and it hit and, I believe, killed uh, you know a young man. And, and it was just, I remember being thinking about that, thinking, man, how freaky is that, that at the exact moment that this piece of concrete gives way, that there's somebody that happens to be under that. It's just, it was, again, just a, a very, very tragic situation, and again, freaky as far as timing. Well, yesterday, and if you were listening to Connie's news, she's talking about that this collapse, third floor, uh, a, se- a hunk of concrete you know, 20 feet long by 50 feet wide on the third level, gives way, collapses, takes out the second level, and ends up on the first level. And it's almost miraculous that, first of all, there there weren't any cars that were going down the ramp, because this took out the ramp, so there weren't any cars that were going down the ramp to get out of the structure. There weren't anybody there wasn't anybody walking through the structure at that point in time and so i mean while while it's a horrible sort of thing situation and i do really feel bad for i think the estimates are that there's 56 vehicles that are now trapped in that parking structure the ones on the second and the third floor i don't know how they're going to get them out because there's no ramp The, the ramp has essentially collapsed so there's no way, even if it was structurally safe, to get those vehicles, you know, down and let people go in there. there. There's no, there's no access point. There's no way right now that they can get down there. As far as the cars parked on the first level, the problem is that you've got all this debris, and even if you can figure out a way to to get out, 
you've got to, first of all, you've got to figure out, is, is the parking structure that which remains? Is it structurally sound, given that there's been a collapse so that you can even let people in? And if you do let people in, how are they going to get their, their vehicles out with the debris that, that's down there? So there, there's all these different factors, and you feel really really bad for the you know, 50 plus people whose cars are stuck for days weeks months you know we, we don't know in that parking garage and you of course feel bad for the people whose cars got you know, crushed by that but there is a, a larger point and that's where I want to and that's what I want to discuss and that is how do parking ramps like this collapse? And is this something that we need to be worried about? Now, this is not, you know, in in the history of parking ramps, this is not an old parking ramp. It, It was built, I think they said, in 2004 or 2005 or 2006. So it's less than 20 years old. Now, I understand. I mean, the theory that people are working with is, well, there was heavy snow on the third level. Okay. But if you look at the snowfall, that you know we've received that, that Milwaukee received over the course of of the, the storm, it's not like this was an epic snowstorm. I mean, it's not like this was two feet or three feet of snow that fell, and it's not like you had the, these giant snow piles. You know, if you're familiar with the Bayshore area, they always used to have on the north side of of the of the shopping center. Uh, before they really went to the town center thing, there was this empty space, and they used to always call it Mount Bayshore because that's where they would plow all the snow, and sometimes you'd go into April and May and even June, and there'd still be a little bit of snow left. So I understand there was a lot of water content that was in the snow, ice, sleet, what you know, whatever you know the, the area got hit with, but it wasn't like this was some sort of epic snowfall or epic storm, I mean, in duration or in amount and and yes it's true that they apparently like plowed it into this one area but you would think that a parking structure should be able to withstand the, the that weight and if it can't withstand that weight and if what happened at Bayshore I guess the question becomes is what happened at Bayshore is that unique was there a problem with the construction or is this something that could happen at any of these parking structures if you you move snow to one side of it 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line i i guess my takeaway from this and i'm not trying to be alarmist but i would have never thought that you know what happened in Milwaukee over the course of the last couple of days could be of significant enough to take down a parking structure and if it is i guess the question is should we be looking at the structural capabilities of all sorts of parking structures or is this one where there obviously had to be a defect i mean like i say i know you know there's a lot of snow i know it was wet snow but at the same time, it wasn't like it was a storm for the ages. 855-616-1620. Do we need to be concerned moving forward? And do we need to have structural engineers not only analyzing that collapse, determining whether or not that entire structure now needs to be taken down, but are you worried that this is something that could happen to other parking structures throughout the area? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. <music> 
855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I guess to me that, that there's a couple takeaways from the, the collapse of the parking structure at Bayshore Shopping Center, a town center yesterday. One is it's a miracle that nobody was hurt. But secondly, how could something like this happen? And the prevailing theory is, all right, they, they had snow on the third level of the parking garage. They, they pushed it all into one area, and that that caused the parking garage to collapse. Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, if, if that's the case, if that's the case, my question is, are, are any parking garages going to end up being being safe? And was this operator error as far as the snowplow people go? Or was this something really larger and, and maybe reflecting a problem with the, the structure uh, in the first place? Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's not rocket science to snowplow parking garages. And does this mean that every time we get a moderate amount of snow that has a high water content in it, that, you know, we're, we're going to see these, these uh, garages collapse? And the truth is that doesn't happen. I mean, this is a unique sort of thing, which tells me maybe there's something structurally wrong with that particular parking structure. But regardless, until we know more about that, is anybody going to be parking their car in there? Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think that specific structure had been facing some structural issues before the snow came on top of it. The one specifically was falling. I've seen various photos of the structure facing damages long before yesterday. I think most structures are built safely, but who knows? Um, you know, that's the question. Jeff, we need to be smarter about the weight of, um, of snow that we're piling up in one spot. If all that would have been snow instead of sleet, it would have been an epic snowstorm. Um, Six parking stalls, and it was enough weight uh, to equal 36 cars. I believe it was operator error. Well, I mean, I guess I, I don't know how we train people to plow the, the top level of parking garages, but that's a pretty significant operating error. Jeff, I'm not an engineer. However, when I built my house... I insisted in rebar be placed in the driveway concrete to ensure that even if hairline cracked sections, uh, that even if it hairline cracked, sections didn't um, move apart. I've also noticed rebar being placed in spancrete concrete floors, including concrete parking structures. When I was watching the coverage in TV, I didn't, uh, I didn't notice any of that collapsed sections from what I could see. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the question. Jeff, these type of structures require a lot of inspection and maintenance. They are a money pit. I don't think it's the plow company. Um, well, you know, that's it. Jeff, I'm not an engineer, but I've often questioned the piles of snow left on top of these structures and thought that it could not be good. Well, yeah, we're, we're obviously seeing that. I guess the question is how bad could this be, and is this... Is this now something? And look, and here, here's the thing: you, you, you can't you, you can't undo what happened yesterday. And like we talk about, it's a miracle that nobody got killed, and that's the great news uh, about all this. But the problem is: is this something that could happen next week, or next November, or next December, or next January when we got get a modest snowfall? And again, I'm not downplaying the amount of snow we had, but this wasn't a blizzard for the ages. And heavy, wet snow is not something that is unique in Wisconsin. And I guess the thought that 
we get a little bit of heavy, wet snow. They go plow the upper level, and that means that this parking garage is going to give way. That, to me, is a scary sort of concept, which makes me think that there had to be something structurally wrong with this particular garage that would have allowed this to happen. But if it's true that this is just the way these things are constructed and a modest amount of snow piled up in one area can bring the things down, seems to me that we need to be refiguring how we build these parking garages. So, uh, I mean, that's the case. Now, I understand that, you know, the news reports are saying the snow weight was in multiple tons, but at the same time, if that's if that's the case, then this has to be made really, really clear. And I don't know that the people who plow snow are told that, well, you know, you've got to go out and you've got to do a calculus and, and bring out your slide rules and bring out your calculators and figure out, OK, how much how much snow is this weighs and, you know, what's the difference between the heavy, wet snow and just the dry snow and how much we, can we put there? If if that's really the situation and these parking structures are so fragile that if you pack too much snow in one corner of them, they are going to give way. Well, that tells me that we're not building these parking structures with sufficient, I don't know, sufficient whatever to stop them from collapsing. And, and it's not so much finding blame. It's more what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because as we talked about at the very beginning of the segment, to me it is a complete and total miracle that you did not have something a lot worse that came from this. Jeff, the salt has chemically invaded the steel and concrete. The added uh, snow weight expedited the event. Well, that's okay. That's a real concern um, with this. Jeff, I used to work for a very large commercial snow removal company. There are pre- and post-season meetings in very specific designated areas for snow to be filed. This piled. This was caused by snow load, but for certain with other structural factors included. Um, these structures have very specific ways that are to be plowed, including the type of blade on the snow plow that plow the type of salt used. After each snowstorm, the decks are then dumped to avoid overloading the structure. Well, okay, then then somebody screwed up. And somewhere along the line, there there is a, a screw-up here, and you have to try to figure out what happened with this, and is it possible that it cannot happen again? Um, you know, no question about that. So for, for people who are saying, oh, this is no big deal, and, you know, this just happens with the snow, sorry, I, I, don't, I, I don't buy that. We're, it's 2023. We put people on the moon. We should be able to figure out how to build a three-floor parking structure so it doesn't collapse when you get a little bit of snow, whether it's heavy or not. Um, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. It, and you don't want to overreact to this, but for people who, and I'm getting a handful of texts, through, well, that this stuff just kind of happens. What do you mean this kind of stuff happens? Parking garages are, do not just collapse. Raymond in Milwaukee. Raymond, you're on WTMJ. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Jeff. Long-time listener. 
Um, I'm a medical carrier, um, and um, I go to the Columbia St. Mary's downtown, uh, right across the street from the hospital. There's a parking structure, and I have to go all the way up to the fifth floor, and I have to drive in this parking structure. And there has been times where I'll hear, like, some noise or um, everything. But today, like, when I drove up there, they might have it in four small different piles, but they have all the snow piled up on that top fifth floor. So I was, uh, I have brought it up to their security team, like, hey, I know if I was in charge of that hospital, I'd be like, hey, look what happened yesterday. Let's get some uh, trucks and yeah. let's get this and let's just get this out of here. Um, everyone needs to be safe. Yeah, no, th- thanks for calling me. A- absolutely. And I guess that that's the question. And I- I'm getting I- I'm getting swamped with texts, as you might expect. And people are all over the map. One of our texters says, look at the pictures. The loft, they, the loft they piled it on was four to five inches of concrete. There's no wire rebar. I believe this was under-engineered concrete. Um, okay, so that's the factor. Somebody else says it's the result of plowing. They pushed it all to the top. It's not spread out. That's the accumulation that caused the problem. They need to pay to haul it away. So whatever you have about this, I'm just telling you, you cannot allow this to continue to go on. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. As Connie was mentioning, the stock market is in the tank yet again today it's been a after a good january it's been a very very bad february the nasdaq right now down two percent which translates into a 236 point drop um the dow jones down uh, 425 it's been with the exception of some moderate gains yesterday it's been an awful week and it's pretty much been an awful month what's What's causing this, and it's always one of the interesting things about the stock market and the economy, what's causing this is the the economy is doing well. And and I know that that's kind of a a, a disconnect here, but there were some new consumer price reports that were coming in, and what they, they found is consumer spending was up. Um, over in the last month, and it was up higher than, than some people thought. And the unemployment rate dropped, and consumer spending was up, and, and wages were up. And you might say, okay, well, wait, I don't understand that. Why would anybody think that that's bad? You've got people that are spending money, and they're buying things, and you've got people, and you know, pretty much anybody who wants a job can get a job, and they're earning more money. Why, why would that be bad? And the answer is it's not, except the... Federal Reserve has been very, very aggressive when it comes to inflation. And the way they have been choosing to fight inflation is to raise the interest rates. Um, you know, and you know, if you're trying to, you know, buy a house, for example, you know, three years ago, you could have purchased a house, gotten a 30 year mortgage with, as Brian Wickard would say, all the right stuff. You could have gotten it for 3%. Now that, that rate is close to 7%, you know, and maybe it can fluctuate a little bit, but the cost of borrowing money has gone up dramatically. And every time that happens, and the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it makes it more difficult or at least more expensive for companies to to expand, to borrow money, to grow, and things like that. So the concern is, in the effort to control inflation by jacking up the interest rates, 
what you're going to do is essentially lead the country into a recession. And what the Federal Reserve has been trying to do is find that, that, that balancing, that sweet spot. And the hope was they had reached a point where they were going to stop raising interest rates or slow the pace of this. And the concern is when you see these numbers that come in showing the economy is still growing and going gangbusters, that's going to mean the Federal Reserve is going to continue raising interest rates, and it's why the stock market tanks again. And uh, don't know what exactly the answer is, although it's it's been a bad couple years Certainly last year was a horrible year for people who had money invested in the stock market, and that includes everybody who's got 401Ks and things like that. And after a decent January, February is just shaping up awful. Okay, the face of evil. You you see this from time to time, but if if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I've got a link to this story. There are... Unfortunately, so many mass shootings that go on that, that you, you can't keep track of, of them all. And a lot of times we, we hear these details, we're appalled, but then before the details of the one place can sink in, there, there's another shooting that's somewhere. Something that's captured a lot of people's attention is something that happened on Wednesday in a suburb of Orlando, Florida. And it involves a 19-year-old monster named Keith Melvin Moses. Keith Melvin Moses, like I say, is 19 years old. He has a lengthy juvenile record um, that means it's of significant convictions to the point that he's not legally allowed to possess a gun or anything like that. Well, that, that doesn't stop him. What happened on Wednesday morning is Keith Melvin Moses, age 19, um, walked into a, a home in a suburb and, and murdered in cold blood a, a woman um, in, in her home in this suburban community. Now, the police are saying that he was acquainted with her, but um, they don't know any more than that. So it, it's a brutal murder that was committed by the, this 19-year-old. So what happens is there, as frequently happens, happens in Milwaukee, you know, you've got TV reporters that are going out to the scene. And so there are TV reporters. This was apparently not the first shooting that happened in this residential neighborhood. And so you had various TV crews that were out and about in in the area. So later on in the afternoon, the, the murder occurred in the morning. Later on in the afternoon, there's various TV crews, including, including um, a TV crew from like a, a Spectrum News situation. And they're there on the scene. They're sitting in their TV news truck. And I don't know if they're waiting to go live or whatever, but they're sitting in the new TV news truck. And what happens is Keith Melvin Moses comes back to the scene, comes back to the area where he had murdered the woman in the morning, and he starts firing into the TV news truck. He ends up killing a, a, a young man, one of the TV reporters, and he shoots uh, his partner, who, who's in the truck as well. So now he's murdered two people. Then what he does... Keith Melvin Moses, is he goes into a house that is nearby. He murders a nine-year-old girl and shoots the girl's mother. The, go- the girl's mother has survived. The nine-year-old did not. So then, so now you've got three people murdered. It's getting lots of attention because there's a nine-year-old kid that's been murdered. You've got the TV reporter who was just sitting in the TV truck, you know, waiting to do whatever he was going to do, and he's been murdered. Then you've got the first person's murdered. So they start looking for 
this Keith Melvin Moses. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got I've got a link to the story and I've got the the video, the body cam video of this guy's arrest. So what happens is shortly after the murder of the nine year old girl, the police find this guy um, and, and he's standing in the middle of the street and so they start yelling at him. They yell at him to get on the ground. He refuses to get on the ground and, and then and then does the, the George Floyd thing. As they tackle him to try to take him into custody, he starts screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And he starts fighting with them, the cops, as they are trying to take him into custody. At that point in time, as he's screaming at them, deputies can be seen retrieving a gun from his pants leg. And apparently, one of them says the gun is still hot. In other words, it's still warm from the shooting of these of these people. So then what they end up doing is they take him, first of all, to the hospital because he's complaining that he can't breathe, all these different things. They take him to the hospital and at that point in time, he begins fighting with hospital staffers. Deputies have to sur- subdue him once again. He continues to attack officers after being transported to a local courthouse. At one point in time, he prefen- pretends to fall asleep to avoid you know, having to discuss anything with them. And again, as I was saying earlier, he's got a long criminal history, which includes gun, battery, assault, and grand theft charges. When authorities were asked why this guy was on the street, given his prolific criminal past, they said, well, um, he almost all of it was before he was an adult. So that's kind of why he's on the street. But if you watch this, this video of his arrest, and again, the I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and you think about the context of what he did, you understand that there is truly evil in this world, and this 19-year-old is a monster. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I want to talk about the death penalty. You understand what this guy did. You understand his reaction. You understand that at the age of 19, he is an amoral, maybe psychotic, certainly incredibly sociopathic serial killer, essentially. And he's 19 years old. There's essentially no chance for rehabilitation at all. He shows no remorse at all. So my question is, moving forward, is this a situation, and Florida does have the death penalty, is this a situation where would anybody have any any objection at all after he's given a trial, found guilty, assuming, you know, the got, state's got to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but assuming that he is, in fact, convicted of what it is apparent he did, murdering the news reporter, murdering the nine-year-old girl, murdering the other woman, trying to murder the uh, the mother of the nine-year-old girl. Anybody got any problems with the death penalty? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Join us at WTMJ for a day-long broadcast. Annex Wealth Management presents WTMJ Conversations 2023, sponsored by Smart Spaces. 
all the names you know that make Milwaukee operate. Long-form conversations with professionals from all sorts of industries, including politics, sports, the arts, and more. Wednesday, March 1st, starting at 8 a.m., Annex Wealth Management presents WTMJ Conversations 2023 right here on, you guessed it, WTMJ, 855-616-1620. If, if you wonder whether evil exists in this world, all you have to do is follow me on Twitter. You, you look at this background of Keith Melvin Moses, the, the 19-year-old who murdered a TV reporter, murdered a 9-year-old girl in cold blood, murdered another woman, tried to shoot and kill the 9-year-old's mother, and then when the police went to try to catch him, then it's like, oh, I can't breathe, don't do this, you're hurting me, all these different sorts of things. It, it is evil personified. And my question is, okay, um, you know, any problem any problem with the death penalty here? Jeff, if, um, Jeff, this guy's a monster. You are right about him not being a candidate for any sort of rehab. After the jury finds him guilty, it should be hours to the gallows, not years. Jeff, no problem at all. Put him to death rather than paying for him for the rest of his lifetime. Jeff, I'm 100% in favor of bringing back the death penalty in Wisconsin. He should get the death penalty if he is convicted. See, that's and, and and this is, I think this is where we, we fail as a society, where we fail to recognize that there really is true evil and that there's no possibility for rehabilitation in some cases because you have people who, well, they're just not wired right and that that's never going to change. And I look, I, I think... I th- I'm all in favor of rehabilitation, and I, I believe that. And I believe that for the vast majority of people, you know, maybe their their lives can be turned around if they get the proper motivation, and, and, and I believe that. But there are certain people that it is very, very clear that that doesn't apply to. On top of that, I think that there are certain crimes which are so significant and so severe that you deserve the ultimate punishment, and murdering a, a news reporter, and it's not just because he's a news reporter, but here's just somebody that's doing his job. And then after you do that, walking in and killing a nine-year-old child in cold blood, my goodness. I mean, why wouldn't we do something, you know, like this? Jeff, I don't have a single problem with this at all. Maybe we should broadcast it to discourage others. Um, hmm. Jeff, I would personally approve of, but the state, what they say is, okay, the person is saying, well, the state has proven that it cannot be trusted not to convince it convict innocent people therefore we should not execute people well no see i don't buy that i understand that you have situations where you have people who've been wrongfully convicted now that's still a huge exception to the rule but that's why i think you know you have an expedited appeal process and you make certain in a case like this where there, there's no question of of guilt Multiple witnesses. He's got the gun in his possession. You've got multiple witnesses that saw him do what it was that he has done. There is absolutely no question at all of his guilt. In those situations where there is absolutely no question of guilt, explain to me why we would not deal with this sort of evil. Jeff, I agree with you. This is pure evil. He should be executed immediately after he's convicted, not 10 years from now. 
I have always believed that justice delayed is justice denied. And people who are anti-death penalty will argue, well, you know, the, the problem is it, it's not a deterrent because people sit on death row for decades. That's absolutely correct. If there's going to be any sort of deterrent, and I, I don't base my arguments for the death penalty just on deterrence, but if there's going to be any sort of argument based on deterrence, you, you have to. it has to happen in a reasonable period of time. That's why you need to fast-track death penalty cases. You may need to make certain that there is a complete review of the cases to, again, guarantee that this is somebody, that you've got the person who did it. But once you determine that, no problem at all. Jeff, I think uh, I think that uh, two wrongs do not make a right. I think you should get the strongest penalty, but no human should kill one another. Now, I disagree. I'm sorry. I, I think there's a difference between guilty life and innocent life, and I think when you do these types of things, you forfeit your right um, to live. And I think that, to me, it, again, it is the ultimate penalty. Jeff, remember the Parkland shooter, the school massacre and trial? Some jurors could not give the shooter the death penalty. I would have no problem under these circumstances. They are monsters, just like Timothy McVeigh. Yes, um, they are. No question about that. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more in a minute. And if you want to see, again, the video of the way this monster behaved when he was arrested, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, again, follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And this next story is the ultimate example of virtue signaling. The state of Connecticut, the legislature has just introduced a resolution which would name and apologize to people who were tried for witchcraft in Connecticut 375 years ago. The group pushing the resolution, the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project, wants the state to recognize the nearly three dozen people accused of witchcraft 375 years ago, apologize for their persecution, and send a message about the dangers of alienating people. Okay, now, I, I... at one point in time, I guess my initial reaction is they must not have too many problems in, in Connecticut. If you're going to spend time saying, okay, we're going to go back 375 years, we're going to identify people who were accused of witchcraft, and now we're going to name them again, and we're going to issue an apology to them. Well, okay, none of them are around to accept the apology. I'm not sure what this accomplishes. Forget that. It's not that I'm not sure what this accomplishes. This accomplishes absolutely nothing other than, I don't know, making some people in some place feel good about themselves that, gee, you know, we accused people of witchcraft 375 years ago. It's not even like, I don't know, you're talking about stuff that happened in the last 5 or 10 or 30 or even in the last 100 years. You've got to go back 375 years to say, we're sorry we accused you of being a witch back then. Virtue signaling in the extreme. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. 
Yeah, it was one year ago today that Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And as we have talked about before, I, I don't know that at least in, in modern history, I don't know that there has been ever, ever been as great a, a miscalculation about how something was going to turn out. I would argue that you probably have to go back to you know World War II and look at Hitler's decision to renege on his um, non-aggression pact that he had with Russia and, and launch an attack on, on Russia, which then had Germany fighting a war on, on two fronts, which pretty much guaranteed that they, they were going to lose the, the war. Um, I, I don't know that and, and there's been certainly all sorts of other military involvements over the years that you, you go back and you say, huh, th- th- these were not well thought out. But I think you might have to, again, go back to the decision to invade Russia by Germany in World War II to, to find a miscalculation as bad as the one that Putin made a, a year ago. Vladimir Putin, first of all, thought that the the Russian army was invincible. And now what we're finding out is that the Russian army, well, not a paper tiger, but the Russian army was nowhere near as formidable as as I think people had been led to believe. Secondly, Vladimir Putin believed that when Russia invaded Ukraine, they would be viewed as conquering heroes. And the people would say, oh, we're, we're thrilled to be back under Russian rule. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And third, Vladimir Putin, I think, believed that uh, the the West would either, number one, not come to the defense of Ukraine, or if it came to the defense of Ukraine, would not be able to sustain itself. By that, I mean <clears throat> that yeah, there, there might be some initial support, but as time wore on, uh, you would have a number of the countries that would break ranks, and what you'd see is, is a divided sort of uh, NATO or whatever, and that hasn't been the case. As a matter of fact, I think you can make the argument that by invading Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin ha- has succeeded in, in doing something that he would have never believed could have happened, not only uniting the West and unifying NATO, but also now causing a number of other countries in the Baltic region to want to join NATO as well. But the problem is, a year into this, you have... You have this incredible humanitarian crisis that's been caused. You have the the economy of the country, which has been shattered. You have millions of people who have been displaced. You have tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians who have been killed. You have tens of thousands of Russian soldiers and civilians who have uh, soldiers who have been killed. You have the report I was looking at this morning says there's about they estimate that over a million Russians particularly many better educated and wealthier, have fled Russia because they want no part of, of where they see this going. So, and unfortunately, at this point in time, there there is no end to this. Uh, the Russia had meetings with China over the last day or two, and, and China has outlined a peace proposal. The latest news to come out is that the president of Ukraine, of Vladimir Zelensky, you know, he he says that he's you know scheduling meetings with China as well. And he said, look, I'm, I there, there's aspects of you know China's peace proposal that right now it's just kind of a sort of a nebulous sort of thing. He said there, there's aspects of this stuff that I could get behind. But the the important thing is it's all about sovereignty, and at least from the perspective of Ukraine, they don't see this war ending unless and until Vladimir Putin or Russia is willing to pull back 
uh, to essentially, you know, where the borders of the countries were before this happened a year ago. And and I'm not sure I see this happening. I, I said this yesterday, and I, I just, and I guess I've been saying it over the course of the last year. I, I don't know what the end game here is. I mean, it seems to me this resolves itself in. There's only a couple ways that this resolves itself. I mean, I guess first of all is that Russia succeeds in conquering Ukraine. I think that is extremely unlikely. Uh, second, that Ukraine, def- if not defeating Russia, is able to convince Russia that they're not going away and that this is going to be a stalemate and that this could be looking like, well, you know, Russia's involvement in Afghanistan. But that it, it took years for Russia to come to that particular conclusion. And, you know, eh, by then, if this goes on another couple of years, you wonder what's going to be left of, of Ukraine. But, you know, if Putin becomes convinced that he cannot win, maybe he, he starts, you know, looking for an off-ramp and, and some sort of diplomatic resolution. Or the third solution is that um, whether it's resignation or death or uh, illness or coup or whatever, um, Vladimir Putin leaves office and somebody comes in who might not be as invested in this war as Putin is. And, and I don't know how likely that is. Bottom line is, I don't think anybody knows how this resolves itself other than to say that I, I think it, it's dug in. Um, the United States, through President uh, Biden, has made a commitment that they're going to put a couple more billion dollars into aid. Largely, I think, you know, Europe remains united behind Ukraine. I don't think any of that's going to change. So um, I'm not sure any of us would have been able to make this prediction a year ago, but it's now very apparent that what Putin thought was going to happen a year ago did not happen. But at the same time, I think we're in for the long haul. And how that all plays out, I don't think anybody knows. But um, from the perspective of Ukraine as a country, I don't think they're going anywhere. Don't think they're going anywhere, and I don't think Russia is going to be able to achieve militarily what it thought it was going to, but that doesn't mean that they're going to quit anytime soon. Yesterday or two days ago, we we talked about one of the things that a lot of school districts are doing around here is there, or at least around Wisconsin in general, is they're, they're doing away with the concept of snow days, and they're, they're saying, okay, we, we want to keep kids in school. And so on days where we can't safely get kids to school, what we're going to do is maybe turn to virtual learning, which I, I, I supported that as an alternative, just like closing down the schools. But as we discussed, virtual learning is it, it's a poor it's a poor substitute for in-person learning. And, and maybe, hopefully, we can all acknowledge that now. And this isn't finding blame with, you know, whether we close the school. This is, this is moving past the whole notion of should we have closed the schools and in the first place? And did we keep the schools closed too long? Let's, we, we need to move past that. And what we need to then confront the, the thing about, okay, what do we do? Because, you know, we have some kids that for a year, a year and a half, they, they weren't in school and they have fallen behind. So how do we deal with that? Because the the numbers are really staggering. If you look at, you know, if if public education was struggling 
pre-pandemic. You know, post-pandemic, you, you have kids that just completely and totally regressed. And I think that's fair to you say that by any sort of measure. And it's nobody's fault. You know, we've we got to move past the idea of, of finding blame. So the question is, what do we do to try to let people catch up? And there's a really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal today. Here's the headline. Summer school can remedy pandemic learning loss. A philanthropist-funded program in New York showed that students got back on track quickly. Let me just read a portion of the story. The crisis in American public education caused by the pandemic has settled into a dangerous new phase, resignation. The disastrous effects of remote instruction are still with us. Students continue to lag behind where they should be, sometimes by multiple grade levels, and little is being done to help them. The good news is we know how to overcome this problem. And then the author goes on to talk about how what they did is they took private money and they they invested this in a summer school program. And what they found is they got 16,000 students from 224 schools to participate. At the summer, they tested the students at the end of the summer to assess their progress, and the results were encouraging. The percentage of students who met grade-level standards in math nearly doubled, and in English, it more than doubled. The share of students scoring below the most basic levels of proficiency fell by nearly half. By the end of the summer session, many students had caught up and were back on track for success. But in much of the country, students don't spend any of their summer vacations in classrooms. And so it goes on to talk about this program, and it says, look, here's the deal. We don't expect that the students are going to be in class all summer, most of the programs run about six weeks, and they offer activities outside the classroom as well as some of the classroom instruction. So they say, okay, you, you still get some vacation. You just don't get as much vacation as you used to. Let's tee this up. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. If we understand and agree that the pandemic and schools closed and virtual learning, no matter how well-intentioned, put a lot of kids behind the eight ball. Doesn't it make sense to say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start instituting summer school programs. Not all summer, but maybe just six weeks. You know, six weeks out of the summer where we can concentrate on trying to get the kids, many of whom have fallen way, way, way behind, We can do some specific instruction to try to help them get back to where they should have been if we didn't have the pandemic. I'm all in with that. 855-616-1620. How about you? We discuss in just a moment. That is, of course, one of my very favorite songs, My Old School by Steely Dan. <clears throat> There's a really provocative piece, or I think an interesting piece, in today's Wall Street Journal, and it's talking about one of the ways we can try to get kids back on track after the pandemic. And, and the solution to me, I think it's very obvious. They're talking about these programs that are being rolled out across the country for for summer school, typically for, I would say, six weeks of instruction. So you still have some some summer break. But rather than having the kids sit and, and do nothing, 
what you do is you concentrate on, okay, you're back in the classrooms. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to help you get back up to speed. And in some of these pilot programs, what they've seen is the results are, are really very, very impressive. At the end of the programs, you know, they, they go in, they do testing, and they find that the kids' proficiency in math has increased. The kids' proficiency ha- in English has, you know, increased. Jeff, at face value, it seems like a good idea, but at the end of a regular school year, learning has really shut down. Thus, maybe three weeks after a regular break would help, but students are in school for 13 years, and over the course of these years, most students catch up, and it varies when it happens. Well, the, the problem, though, is that the kids, I'm, I'm afraid we've lost, uh, I don't want to say a generation of kids, but with, with what's happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic, you, you've had this huge regression. And I think you need to do something outside the box to try to help people um, catch up. Um, you know, no question about that. Jeff, I'm a firm believer that if you don't use it, you lose it. And as a cliche, it may be that nothing good comes out of either hands, idle hands either. Keeping them busy in today's society is important. And at the very least, it helps keep them engaged. Um, yeah, um, Jeff, excellent idea, but how do we pay for it? Teacher contracts don't require them to work extra weeks in the summer unless they're paid a bunch extra, and also teachers want to work travel. Um, they expect to do nothing during their long break. Well, I, I understand, but what we're talking about taking all sorts of money and, and putting it into the school system, and I have always been a believer that just – Throwing money at a problem doesn't make it better. And just for example, okay, saying, "All right, we're we're gonna we're gonna take all this money and you know we're gonna give it to schools." Well, that that doesn't make any difference. What you have to do is you have to figure out how can we spend the money in in a smart way. And maybe you know maybe that's in going through some of these summer school programs. Um, you know, there, there's no question about it. Jeff, I live in Lake Country, and I believe part of the problem is that kids can't fail. They get graduated to the next class even though they're not proficient. I have personally been through this and a good friend of mine is going through this right now. So even though you want your child to be held back, the system pushes them through. I'm I, I'm a see and I'm a great believer in that, by the way. The the the, the social promotion because it just puts you further and further behind. If you've got <clears throat> a kid who is you know, supposed to go into fourth grade but they're, they're doing work at a second grade level, kicking them up to fourth grade doesn't help because they're, they're going to be lost. It just puts them further and further and further behind. And it ends up in somebody going to high school that's that's reading at a fifth grade level or, or whatever. But we still just keep kicking them up and kicking them up along social promotion. The trick is let's let's get people proficient. And I think maybe summer school is a way to do that. Steve in Milwaukee. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, sure. You know, when I was in the service, I had seen uh, kids going to school in in Southeast Asia. They go to school year round. It's it's a natural thing for them. I understand that. You know, from our society, we had they had to get the summers off so they could help when we were an agrarian society. Where yeah. they'd have to help yeah. out in the fields and whatnot. But that's not the case anymore. At least for you know, where, you know, like in the city of Milwaukee, for instance, I don't see many farms here. Uh, and even if there were, there's a lot of heavy machinery that can do all that work. 
there's nothing wrong with having it broken down into the the school year broken down, for instance, in the quarters. You go to school for, say, three months, you can get two weeks off. Then you go another mm-hmm. three months, you get two weeks off. This, yeah. I, there's, there's no reason why, I mean, like I said, it, they were doing it year-round, and uh, they're doing it year-round in Southeast Asia, and they are head and shoulders in front of us. Yeah. You know, to, you know, th- no, thanks for the call. No, I, I agree, and, and if... And if you want to, if you want to have a bigger picture, now I'm, I'm just, I'm talking about summer school. So I'm talking about, let, let's say, six weeks of instruction, which would still allow you, allow the kids a month, you know, of, of uh, four or five weeks, depending on how you stru- structure the schedule, which would still allow, you know, four or five weeks of, of vacation. So families could take the vacations. You just plan around that. But, you know, if you want to take that next step and say, hey, maybe we need to look at completely adjusting the school year. Maybe we go to quarters. Maybe we go to trimesters. Oh, okay, that's it. And I understand there's a couple issues. Some people are texting me saying, well, you know, you've got some of these school buildings that are old and it might be hot. You, you, you can work around that sort of thing. But to just again stick our hands in our pockets and say well there, there's nothing we can do and we're not going to ever have to try expect these kids to catch up to me that makes no sense Jeff I lived in Germany where they do not give kids a long summer break at all maybe this is one of the reasons for much better achievement the kids have there you know maybe I, I think you know that's that's it. And I, we, we have to start thinking of some things. This program that's in the Wall Street Journal, it was, it was privately funded by some philanthropists, but they're saying, hey, this is working. And if it's working when we pay for it, maybe it's something that either other philanthropists want to get on board with or alternative, alternatively, maybe this is something that the system should be looking at doing. Okay, I understand it's a Friday afternoon, and we're going to appreciably lighten up stuff coming in the, the next hour, leading into Pop Culture Corner. But there's been something I've been I've been wanting to talk about this or revisit this for for a couple weeks, and we're going to do it now. The uh, you know, Paul Ryan, who I think I think Paul Ryan, is, and I have known Paul since he first got into politics. I, I want to say like 1995, and so it was really kind of. I mean, I remember when he first ran for office, and it was kind of it was really very fun and, and rewarding to see the, how how quickly he climbed the ladder of of success and things like that, up to and including becoming a candidate for vice president of the United States. And one of the things I've always said about Paul Ryan is that I believe he's one of those guys who is the smartest guy in the room, but he has this amazing trait um, of. He doesn't necessarily show that, you know, because so many times when you run into these people who think they're the smartest guy in the room, they want you to know that they're also the smartest guy in the room. Ryan isn't like that. And whenever Paul Ryan talks about stuff, if you if you are if you're smart yourself, you you want to pay attention and you want to to listen. So Paul Ryan is out plugging a book now that he's written, and he he's talking about what's always been one of his pet issues, which is Social Security and, and Medicare. And what what he's been saying this week and in previous weeks is that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have put this country at risk by politicizing and swearing off changes to Medicare and, and Social Security, by playing politics with this, oh, these these Republicans, and, and Trump does, Trump's done it, Biden's done it. These Republicans, they're, 
These Democrats, they're out. They want to essentially cut off Social Security for people. They want to, you know, eliminate Medicare. They want to defund all this. Uh, We can't let them touch it. But by making that argument, what they have really done is they have just simply kicked this problem, kicked the can down the road when we really don't have time to kick the can down the road. Okay, here, I mean, here's, here's the deal. And I think people know how Social Security works. If not, just bear with me for just a minute. Those of us who work, we pay, we and our employers pay a tax that goes into Social Security. We, it's not like you're putting money in your personal bank account that you control, but rather you get credits. Social Security, the way it works is that people who are working now fund the, social, the, the, the payments of Social Security that are made to people who are on Social Security. What's, what's going on, though, is that for the longest time, there were like five people working for every person that was on Social Security. All right? Well, what's happening now is in the very near future, that's going to be down to like two people working for every person that's collecting Social Security. So what's going to happen is, in its most basic form, the money coming into Social Security is not going to be enough to pay out the money that's leaving Social Security. So here's the deal. Unless Congress acts, the estimate is by 2035, which is coming up pretty quick, Social Security funds will be sufficient to pay only about 80% of the program's obligations to retirees and disabled workers. So the only way Social Security is going to be able to exist, unless there's changes, is by cutting the benefits, estimated at 20 to 25%, you know, over time. So that's, I mean, that's just the reality about that. And aside from the 2035 problem, Social Security is already on track to replace less pre-retirement income for today's younger workers than for today's retirees. And that's due to problems with the program. So there are very, very real financial issues which are are posed, presented to Social Security. One of the things that's happened is it used to be Social Security, the retirement age, full retirement age, was 65. That has now been changed depending on, on how old you are. So for some people, full retirement age is now up to 67. Now, that doesn't mean you can't start collecting benefits. You can collect benefits, I think, was it, 62 or something like that. But it's 67 for full retirement benefits for some people, 65 for some. For me, I think it's 66 and a half or something like that. I'm, I'm kind of in, in that, that range. But, but we keep extending the time for full retirement benefits. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I understand we're not going to solve all the problems of the world, but it is frustrating to me in the extreme when politicians refuse to acknowledge that there is not light at the end of the tunnel, but rather there is a train coming the other way. When you have Donald Trump and Joe Biden who are both saying, oh, these people want to they want to cut back social security and things like that without recognizing that we've got to do something now for me it's a combination of things i think it's increasing the full retirement age 
I, I think gradually you're going to see the retirement, full retirement age, you know, increase probably to 70, not right away, not suddenly, but a gradual thing. I think you probably have to look at increasing the threshold that people pay tax on Social Security. The way it works right now is if you make up to, I want to say, 160 grand, you, you pay tax, Social Security tax on that. Once you make more than 160, um, it stops. You, you don't have to pay Social Security anymore. And the reason for that is because your, your benefits, you, you're not going to you're not going to get a corresponding amount of benefits for paying more than that 160 tax above 160 grand but i think you're going to have to see that go up a bit some people think there shouldn't be any limit on it i don't think that's fair either some people are saying maybe what you need to do is means test social security so you know if you hit retirement and you have X amount of money in your retirement account, well, then maybe you shouldn't be able to collect as much Social Security. Now, to me, that that's a complete and total non-starter. That's punishing people who saved money during their working years. So I don't think you can do that. Our number, 855-616-1620. But regardless of what it is, whether it's increasing the amount of money that people pay, pushing back the retirement age, or something else, don't we need to do something to make sure that not the people who are on Social Security now. I, they're going to be fine. Not the people who are going to be going on Social Security in the relatively near future. But don't we need to seriously have a conversation about doing something to make sure it is going to be sustainable moving forward so people like my producer Charlie in their 20s and 30s so that they they can know that they're going to have something from the government that they can depend on, just like people who retired 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago who or who are going to retire in the next five years and have made plans on this. Don't we owe it to the younger generations of people to do something to make sure that Social Security is going to continue to be viable? 855-616-1620. And if we do owe it to them, then what do we do? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. I mean, here's, I'm going to do the math guy. Here's the math. Over the next three decades, the Social Security system is scheduled to pay benefits $21 trillion greater than its trust fund will collect in payroll taxes and related revenues. Medicare, which is a whole different story, Medicare system is projected to run a $48 trillion shortfall, and these deficits are in projected to in turn produce 20 47 trillion in interest payments to the national debt and and it's just again it's demographics like i was saying earlier the ratio of workers supporting each retiree which was about five to one 30 40 years ago will fall to just over two to one in the next decade people who live until the age of 90 will spend about one-third of their adult life collecting Social Security and Medicare benefits. The typical retiring couple today will receive Medicare benefits three times as large as their lifetime contributions to the system and will also come out ahead on Social Security. And that's that, that's so this is the reality of what we're looking at. Jerry in Hartford. Jerry, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, so France is going through this debate yep. right now, and you can kind of see why I believe the president of France 
is probably going to end up losing his job by even bringing it up, you know. I, you, know you, you know, Jerry, you're exactly right. You know, France, I think, uh, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in France, it's full stop. 62 years old is is the, the full retirement age, and they're in exactly the same situation. They can't afford it. And so he's looking at talking about increasing the retirement age, and people are protesting in the streets. And they're, they're just, But the reality is that the math just doesn't work up. You can't let people retire at 62 in France and, and have a system that's affordable. Right. Yep, and I mean, right. Somebody's got to get have the courage in the United States to, you know, address this right. problem. I think the Republicans are just slightly better at it. Uh, I think they're at least want to talk about about it a little bit better than what the Democrats do. But yeah, I mean, everybody's got to put their big boy pants on and get this thing solved before it's, there's nothing left. Yeah. There, you know. No, thank no, thanks. I, I agree, and I guess, and again, we we you can kick around the different ideas, and and maybe you know, maybe you think it's I, it's wrong when I say you should you start to again gradually up the the retirement age, so at least the expectations of of somebody who's thirty two, you know, okay, the, the expectations this is full retirement age is going to be sixty nine or, or whatever when when you get there thirty five years from now, but and. But you and you need to kind of again have a, a landing path where you know people can understand and plan. That's why the idea of somebody who's in their upper fifties, for example, you know, who've had expectations about you know when they're going to be able to retire and what their benefits are going to be, you can't pull the rug out from under them. So anything you have to do has to be some pers- perspective. But it is so frustrating when you have and, and Trump did it and Biden is doing this. This efforts to demonize anybody who wants to at least even talk about the problem. And what's so damn dishonest about the whole thing is it, it's it's not going to be Biden's problem because. Okay, 20, what are the numbers you're looking at? Uh, by 2035 is where you get, unless something happens, a completely sort of unsustainable thing. Well, Biden's not going to be, he's not going to be the president in 2035. Donald Trump's not going to be the president in 20, 2035. So you have all these old politicians who are kicking this can down the road, who are demonizing this issue, using it for short-term political gain, and they're not going to be around to have to, to suffer the, the consequences of their counsel. Um eight five five six one six one six twenty Gianni in Montello. Gianni you're in WTMJ. Yes, Jeff. I, I am not an economist and I'm certainly no Paul Ryan. But let me proffer this. Wouldn't we gradually solve this problem over the next twenty years by cutting spending, number one, and gradually increasing uh taxes in the United States? That would 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 slow down a very hot economy that has been very hot a long time, much like interest rates do, and maybe it would even help us to get rid of some of this uh, government credit card debt that we keep uh, accruing. What say you? What's wrong with that? Well, thanks for calling, Jan. I mean, I have to. I mean, I have to think about it. I mean, when, when we talk about increasing taxes, I presume what you mean is you mean is increasing the the social security, the, the tax that people pay on social security. And there's a couple ways that you could do that. You could increase the social security tax that all of us pay and that our employers then match. Or you could say, okay, we're going to we're, we're going to increase the the dollar amount. Like I said, there's right now there's a hundred and sixty thousand dollar cutoff, and we'll make those people who 
earn more will make them end up paying more. But at the flip side, though, they're, they're not going to get that back at the tail end when it comes to benefits. I, I think something like that has to be on the table. But, you know, you were saying like cutting benefits. Well, Okay, that the problem with that is, my my gosh, you 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 can't cut you can't cut anything nowadays without people. You know, we we're ro- look what we're doing. We're rolling back some of these programs that were implemented during the pandemic, specifically because of the pandemic, and we're rolling those back. And now people are screaming, "Well, how dare you? You cut the, this back? You know, how are we going to eat? You know, we got increased supplemental food payments, more food stamps, and no, they're they're not technically food stamps, but we got more of this, and we've got to depend on this now." So how can you take this away even though the pandemic has ended? So whenever you talk about cutting benefits, I, I think it becomes really, really problematic. But but again, the, the point of this session isn't to come up with the ultimate answer. It is to roast politicians who decide to demonize and demagogue on this issue by pretending that there's not a problem. And and I, I understand why this happens, because you, you you sit there and you say what I'm talking about. You say, hey, we've got to have this discussion. You know, we, we've got to talk about this. And, and everything needs to be on the table, whether it's raising the retirement age or increasing the, the payments that, you know, people make or, or all these other different solutions. And you do that and you just get demagogued. Oh, this is the guy that wants to put granny on the iceberg and float her out to die. How can you imagine that? Can you imagine he, he wants to tell you that you have to work longer or you might not be able to get full retirement age? Yeah, we, we have to have that conversation because otherwise it's going to be a train wreck. And Social Security and Medicare is a different issue with some different concerns. But these are too important to this country to not have a serious conversation about them. So shame on Donald Trump, shame on Joe Biden, and shame on all the other politicians who don't want to have meaningful conversations about this and want to kick the can down the road till they're out of office and then they don't have to worry about it. And we're facing a crisis. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, at JeffWagner620, I, I, I just sent out a tweet that I, I maybe it's going to be controversial given our conversation at the very start of the show, but it, it just, I, I, I continue to focus on this this parking ramp collapse at Bayshore Shopping Center. And I guess I'm struck by the the large number of people who don't seem to think it's a big deal, <laughs> which it's, well, you know, stuff like this happens, and, you know, they, they just they put the snow in, like, one corner of, of the thing. Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry. <sighs> to me, first of all, it's a miracle that nobody was injured or killed. But that said, parking structures should not collapse because snow and ice is plowed into piles on their top floors. And parking structures don't collapse because of this. And it seems to me there has to be some sort of structural issue that was present here. Um, And then my other question is, like, when was the last inspection of this ramp? But, you know, I I guess if parking structures do collapse because you have a a moderate amount of heavy, wet snow. and, And, look, I'm not downplaying the storm that, you know, hit southeastern Wisconsin this week, but I've I've. Grew up in Wisconsin. I have lived in Wisconsin most of my life. And, you know, what 
the snow we get this winter, for example, is a fraction of what you know we've gotten over the years. And I don't see parking garages and structures collapsing on any sort of regular basis. So I, I think, and if they are going to start collapsing, well, then I think you know we we really need to know that. And you ask this question about are are these things going to be safe moving forward? So there's a lot of questions that are out there, um, and I guess I. I just I sent out a tweet because I was struck by the fact that some people oh it's no big deal you know oh this was you know they they just had they had a couple cars that were there this, the parking structure it collapsed the third floor is now on the first floor and it is but for the grace of God sincerely that you don't have you know that there weren't people on the second or first floor when this thing gave way period okay a couple things I want to talk about there is a it's it's this phenomena, and I, I want to ask you why you think this happened. There's a um, Wilmore, Kentucky, little town in Kentucky. If you haven't been following the story, for the past two weeks, tens of thousands of people from all over the country have traveled to Valor Christian College, um, which is a is a is a tiny Christian college in in Kentucky. Well, what we have is you have this tiny Christian college that is in Kentucky, and what's happened is you have people from all over the country who have been pouring in to it's actually it's Asbury University in Kentucky to pray and sing until the wee hours of the morning, lining up hours before the doors opened and leaving only when volunteers closed the chapel at 1 a.m. to clean it for the next day. What what happened was this started on February 8th, and a few dozen students lingered after an ordinary morning chapel service to continue singing and praying together. Word about the spontaneous gathering spread on campus. By evening, students were dragging mattresses into the chapel to spend the night. Within days, their enthusiasm exploded into a national event. The university estimates that the revival has drawn more than 50,000 people to Wilmore, Kentucky, which is a town of 6,000 people, um, you know, 6,000 people. People are coming from all over the country to attend this revival. And it's gotten to the point now where the authorities at the university are saying, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to stop this. Um, we're going we're gonna to close this down because it's getting to be a distraction. But for the last couple weeks, 50-plus thousand people from all over the country hearing about this and driving to this little town in Kentucky because they, they want to participate this in this and, and they want to they want to pray our number is 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line this is being described as woodstock for christians um it's it's candidly they, they think it's the the nation's it's being described as the nation's first major spiritual revival in decades and one of the really interesting things that is driving this is it's it's people in Generation Z. It, it's people, you know, teenagers up to the age of 26 who are coming from all over the country to this little town simply because word of mouth, they've heard that something's going on. There is this revival. 
Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think was the driving force or is the driving force behind this? It's really, it is an incredible phenomena that has a lot of people saying, well, wait, I, I thought people were past organized religion. And I think I thought organized religion was kind of passe and it wasn't for younger people and stuff. What's going on here and what has happened that you have people coming from all over the country to participate in this this revival? 855-616-1620. I've got a couple theories. I'd be curious as to what yours are. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. This, in in some respect, and you know, on this program, we... we just by its nature, we, we talk a lot about some, a lot of the bad stuff that, that's going on in, in the world or, you know, locally or nationally or, or internationally. But every once in a while, there's these feel-good stories. And, and part of the reason, uh, one of the things that's frustrating to me sometimes is I don't think they get enough attention. And this, this has been going on for the last couple weeks. What, what happened is, a handful, if you're just tuning in, handful of students at this small Christian college in Kentucky, Ashbury University. They, they hung around after morning chapel just to, to pray and sing. And word got out as to what they were doing. And people started coming from all over the country. A couple texters say there are people coming from all over the world. They've now had over 50,000 people from predominantly in the country who have, have come to participate in in this spiritual revival and it's a lot of young people that are are doing this and a couple people are saying well why is the college shutting it down well they're shutting it down because this is this it's a town of six thousand and it's it's a small school and they're saying what's happening is they just don't have the resources and the scope to, to deal with tens of thousands of people that are descending and heading into this chapel and all, and so they, they, they want to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy. But to me, the interesting aspect of the story is that it's happening in the first place at a time where we're told that there's no there's no desire for organized religion and you know people are turning their backs on, on this sort of spiritual stuff. <clears throat> Here you see this playing out in the real world. Um, just, <clears throat> you know, tremendous. Uh, 855-616-1620. Jeff, humans are social in nature and naturally want to be part of a community. And for a younger generation finding themselves adrift, they're gravitating towards religion to find a sense of belonging. I could not agree more with with that texter. Um, here, here's kind of the bottom line. I think especially after the last couple of years with everything that went on with COVID, the pandemic and, and all those things, I think there's a lot of people that are kind of adrift and, you know, believe that, okay, the, the, the problems that we're facing and we're, we're looking ahead for the rest of our life and the, these problems are just stuff that we cannot deal with and everything has gone to you know where in a handbasket and, and they're looking you know, they're, they're looking for for something that, that's out there. They're looking for whether it's a sense of belonging or maybe something that gives them kind of a, a healing or a sense of peace or something like that. And I think that's where the appeal of this is, recognizing that maybe, maybe there's something more that is out there, and they're gravitating that and trying to, you know, find that as as well 
Jeff, I think it's an opportunity for people that do actually have some strong beliefs to attach themselves to the situation and in mass and not necessarily be scrutinized by the rest of society. Jeff, I think this is exactly what our country needs to get back to our core values that made this country great. These young adults have been deeply affected by COVID, um, and now, yeah, praise the Lord, they're starting to try to you know, find themselves. I, I, it, it's just great news. I, I, think, you know, that's, I think that's one of the wonderful things that's out there, um, trying to, again, find people that you can relate to. And I understand that there's people who are listening to this going, well, why is he spending time on the radio? And why is he talking about these, these religious zealots and things like that? Well, I, I'm talking about this because this is a spontaneous sort of thing. This isn't one of these astroturf things where you, you have like the, the paid organizers that come out and try to pretend it, it's a spontaneous thing. This this is people who genuinely heard about something and, and came because they are looking for something more in, in their lives. And they were willing to just just drive, you know, drive from California to a little town in Kentucky because they wanted to be, you know, with other people who were sharing the same sort of experience. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting that the, the kids who go to this little college, you know, they're, they're talking about this. They say it, it's been, you know, we, we, we find like adults who are sleeping on a bench outside our, our classrooms. But we recognize that at least for a while, you know, these kids and this school and this chapel had been the part of something special. And how very, very cool is that and i do think in troubled times and look we, we've always lived in troubled times that stories like this are are just absolutely life affirming and it shows that there are people out there who you know care and care deeply and are looking for something and aren't afraid to be spiritual and i think is you know, we're in lent now and as we move into the easter season that's i think that's again something that's life affirming again regardless of of what your religious beliefs are but that there's a lot of people out there who at least appreciate that maybe there is there is something beyond us in in the world and there's a higher purpose there and i just i I think it's a just a great great story and i wouldn't be surprised to see if there are more things like this you know moving forward By producer Charlie He's saying, "Okay, what what is this this flash panning thing that you talked about?" <clears throat> I, I I mentioned this a, a month or so ago. I I um I I made a, a point. I, I just I refused to pay money to subscribe to USA Today. I just I, I wasn't getting that much out of it, and so I had canceled a subscription. And then they they sucked me back in. It was one of these deals where okay for for six months for like ten dollars or whatever it was. And so I said, "Okay, I'll I'll, I'll try that out." And so I. One one of the features they have, and they do this about once a week, is that, that it's kind of like Gen Z speak. And I don't mean to pick on Gen Z people because I just commended everybody for like traveling to this little community in Kentucky to to for, for the spiritualization of that. But it, it's like this column that, that talks about how we used to have, we, we now have terms for everything when it comes to social interaction. Um, now, for example, 
we have we have pocketing. You know, we've talked about these before. Pocketing. What is pocketing? Well, it's when your partner won't publicly celebrate your relationship. You know, they, they put you in in their pocket. And and there's ghosting, which is where you know you you think you're in a relationship, and all of a sudden the person stops returning your texts and stuff. Now th- this has been going on forever, but now we have to we have to come out with these names for it. There's hardballing. Hardballing. That's and we, we actually did a topic about this about a month or two ago. Hardballing is a dating strategy that encourages people to be upfront about their romantic goals from the first interaction. So you go out on a date, first date, you're sitting there, you're, you're getting acquainted, hi, what do you do, etc. Hardballing is where you say, okay, this is what I want to know. Do you want to have kids? You know, tell, tell, tell me about this up front. Do, do, do you want to have kids? You know, do you want to live in the suburb? What, and you know, kind of asking those questions. Now, my point was, if somebody at the first, well, I think these are relevant questions maybe to determine whether there's going to be a long-term relationship or not. If somebody at the first date said, tell me, do you, do you want to have 2.5 kids? And, gee, you know, I really like to live in this particular suburb. I, that, that might be hardballing for some, but that would, I think, I, I would find that to be kind of scary and stalkerish and kind of off-putting. But there is a term for this. So the latest term I learned, and I always, if you're a regular listener, you know, I, one of my goals is to try to learn something new every day. And and sometimes it could be something really, really earth-shattering, and something it could be, sometimes that it could be that thing I learned, could be something that I just, God, I, I must have been so incredibly dumb to have not known this, and sometimes it's something that makes me dramatically smarter. And then every once in a while, it's like, huh, so USA Today has contributed to the thing that, that I have learned for today, and it is a term called flash panning. F-L-A-S-H-P-A-N-N-I-N-G. Or, in particular, the question is, are you a flash panner? So, my producer Charlie wants to know, what exactly is a flash panner? Here, here is the deal. This is the, it's the latest trend in dating. Now, I, again, I'm, I've, <laughs> I've been, I, I've been married, you know, most of my adult life. And as I've always said, when it comes to affairs of the heart, I have outkicked my coverage, you know, twice. And so I'm very, very lucky. So I'm as far away from dating as you possibly can be. But the latest dating trend is called flash panning. What is flash panning? It describes someone who indulges in the instant spark only to ghost that's that other term, when the relationship becomes too real. Think, for instance, of someone who loves the thrill of first dates but jumps ship when it's time to meet the parents or become Instagram official. Boy, how, how 2020 is that? Um, they like it when it's fun, but when it gets real, they have no skill set. They evacuate because now something has gone wrong for them. And instead of saying, oh, we have conflict, something has happened, they don't understand this is a normal part of a relationship. Um, it isn't easy to commit to a serious relationship, but experts warn flash panning can be destructive for those on the receiving end. And then the story that I'm looking at goes on to describe in great detail how you can tell if you are involved with a flash panner. Um, and this trend is a flash in the pan. Typically starts within the first month of a romance, characterized by love bombing. There's another term. An intense over-the-top flattery, um, only for it to end in being ghosted. <laughs> 
it's, we have all these terms to describe this. Like, I, I mean, yeah, when, when I was dating back in the day, you, you had flash panning. It would be these people who, like, fall madly in love and then quickly fall madly out of love. And that's what we just said. It was said, oh, they're kind of like a Roman candle. They go off, and that, that's sort of it, and then they move on. Well, now we know that is flash panning. So if you know someone who is a flash panner, you can now tell them, hey, I figured out there's a term for what you are. You are a flash panner. And they suggest that maybe one of the ways you can deal with flash panners is you can hardball them. So when somebody kind of indicates that they have fallen madly in love, that's when you go in and you ask them, well, how many kids do you want? And do you want the house in the suburb? And are we going to have three dogs or just two? You learn something new every day. When we come back, it's that time of the week, Pop Culture Corner, and we have a special Pop Culture Corner just for this week. Stick around. Gather round all. It's time for Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Time to put aside the heavy lifting and have a good time at the old National Bank talking text line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. Pop Culture Corner. We do this segment every week. We do this topic once a year around this time of the year. Uh, Mardi Gras was on Tuesday. Um, Ash Wednesday was, of course, this Wednesday. We are in the Lenten season, and it runs Easter's like April, let's see, 5th, 6th, 7th, like 9th or something this year. Easter is... I think it's early. Somebody was saying, well, it's not particularly early. I, but anyways, Easter is early April this year. Uh, during Lent, historically, people, and you, you don't have to be Christian to do this, but uh, one of the traditions has been you eat fish on Fridays, particularly during Lent. And, of course, if you are from Wisconsin or a Wisconsin transplant, you know that the idea of eating fish on Friday, which does harken back, I think, to our, our, the, 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 our, the Catholic traditions and things like that. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be Catholic to, you know, enjoy a good fish fry. And uh, when it comes to Lent, pretty much, well, there's all sorts of places around that decide that they are going to offer fish fries. This is the time that, you know, churches um, and various other nonprofits will have fish fries. Serb Hall has started, again, um, their in-person fish fries on, on Fridays, and they're going to do that during Lent. And there's a lot of restaurants that, even if they haven't offered fish fries um, over the rest of the year, they, they do it during Lent. And there's some, of course, that offer it every Friday. I admit, and my wife will attest to this, I am a sucker for fish fries. I mean, when Friday rolls around, I, it's and my choice is okay. We're going to go out to get something to eat or all. My I'm like okay. It, does it have? Can I get a fish fry there? Now I have certain standards. Now I I like all different types of fish fries. There are some things that I to me it's what makes it a a perfect fish fry. But what we're doing for Pop Culture Corner this week in recognition that it is the fish fry season with Lent, we're going to talk about food. So here is my question, and it's really it's two parts. What makes the perfect fish fry, and where do you go for the perfect fish fry? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, as part of Pop Culture Corner, which is sponsored by our friends at Palermo's Pizza, well, we have a gift package. And one of our callers, in the exclusive discretion of my producer, Charlie, will win our Palermo's Pizza prize package, which is 
coupon good for two Palermo's frozen pizzas, this really cool pizza cutter, and some other stuff as well. It's actually a really cool prize package. And I understand we're sponsored by Palermo's Pizza, but because of, of Lent, because it's the fish fry season, we're talking about fish fries on Pop Culture Corner, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What makes the perfect fish fry? And even more importantly, where do you go for the perfect fish fry? We'll discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's pop culture time. Now back to take your calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. And, of course, Pop Culture Corner brought to you by Palermo's Pizza. Delicious frozen pizzas made right here in Wisconsin for over 55 years. Palermo's is Wisconsin's hometown pizza, 855-616-1620. We're not talking pizza today. It's Lent. We're talking fish fries. All right. What, what's, what's the best fish fry? You know, what makes the perfect fish fry? And where do you go for yours? Jeff, for me, top fish fry, um, deep fried haddock at Bosch's Historical Tavern in Hales Corners. Um, great service with great food. The Bosch is, of course, my friend and colleague, uh, former colleague Gene Miller. That's his watering hole. Jeff, the perfect fish fry is all you can eat with your choice of baked or beer battered. I always go to Silvercrest in Watoma. Uh, this is going to make us hungry. Jeff, the fish fry has to be in the house. Hot and crispy, whether it's breaded or beer battered. The fish doesn't survive the ride home in a to-go container, limp and soggy. I, I do agree with that. I think fish fries and takeout just really don't work. Um, Jeff Saz's makes a delicious fish fry. It's always flaky and fresh. I think their tartar sauce is really tasty, too. Yeah, see, now that's, for for me, you, you know, it's got to have great tartar sauce. There's just no question about it. It's got to be great tartar sauce because, uh, you know, tartar sauce is, I mean, one of the excuses, fish is one of the excuses to eat tartar sauce. So I'm down with that. Okay, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Cheryl in New Berlin. Cheryl, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jeff. Our favorite is the Bass Bay Brew House in Muskego. It's uh, formerly the Audemars, and uh, they have excellent fish. They have excellent tartar sauce, and they have a mm-hmm. beautiful view of Muskego Lake. Okay, so you've got the whole thing. So what do you wash your perfect fish fry down with there, Cheryl? What's the, uh, what's the beverage of choice? Um, it's got to be a brandy old fashioned. <laughs> I, Cheryl, I, you know, I, I, you just, 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 just talking to you for thirty seconds, I could tell that you were a brandy old fashioned girl. That's great. Thanks for the, <laughs> thanks for the call. I appreciate what. No, that's it. I'm sorry. That that that's exactly that that is exactly it. Now, now for me, I, I love old fashions. I'm a bourbon old fashioned guy. I mean, brandy and I know, but. Um, you know, you've, you've got that going on. 855-616-1620. Uh, let's talk to Kathy in Waukesha. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Ron's Cozy Corner in Oconomowoc. Okay. What makes it so good? <laughs> oh, it's lightly battered. Um, the tartar sauce is delicious, and the price is fantastic. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that that that's true too. Okay. What what kind of fish do you, for your perfect fish fry? What what or cod, haddock, perch? What what kind cod. of are you going cod to? Cod would be cod. yeah. Okay. Cod. Got mm-hmm. it. Yeah. No. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Let's see. I, now there's. I don't. For me, I got to admit, and it, it's tough. And thanks for the call, Kathy. For me, it's it's more difficult because it's harder and harder to find perch, and I I I, I like cod. 
I like haddock, but for me, the perfect fish fry is is beer battered perch, and I I just and it it's harder to find perch nowadays, and it's more expensive. But to me, um, if all things being equal, I'm going to a place that that has that. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to um, Jack in Glendale. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Well, Jeff, if you're looking for perch, you're going to find it at Victor's. Okay, uh, I've never had their fish fry. Okay. Oh my God! Have it, you know what, Jeff? That place from five until nine on Fridays is a dinner club, and at ten o'clock it turns into a nightclub. Whole yeah. different clientele, whole <laughs> different story. But everything that walks out of that kitchen from Mary Pat looks like it just hopped out of a food magazine, and it tastes just as good. Oh, okay, it happened, and you know, they've been in business since the late 60s. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, a very famous place. Thanks to call, Jack. I mean, you know, um, Victor's, it's, it's on Van Buren, and, you know, it's got a, I mean, it is the nightclub. It's got a rec- reputation. It's had a reputation over the years as being one of those kind of places that if you if you want to meet members of the opposite sex, you, you go down there. But I, I I don't think I've ever eaten there, and I've never had the fish fry there, and, and it's it's been a long time since I have been to victors i mean a long long time but i've heard great things about this 855-616-1620 let's talk to um dennis in brookfield dennis you're on wtmj hi jeff good afternoon hi. good afternoon okay the hi. best place best fish fry. yeah um mj stevens out toward uh uh teresa fond du lac um, uh-huh They've got a really good fish fry, nice tender fillets, good crisp breading. You know, I like a nice tender fillet other than uh, chewy cod brick. <laughs> right. <laughs> you go so many places, you know, great fish fry, and it's just this big brick of cod. But, yep. um, you know, it's the breading, like you said, the tartar sauce, and yep. me, you got to have more than a little cup of coleslaw. Yeah, absolutely. You got to and okay. And so now there, there's various schools of thought. Okay, for the potato, French fries, uh, baked potato, or a potato pancake. Meat potato pancake. I, Je- uh, Dennis, I knew you and I we, we were simpatico on that. You got to have good <laughs> potato pancakes as well. No, no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. And Dennis, obviously, you have appealed to my producer Charlie because you're the winner of our Palermo's Pizza Prize package for today. So it's it's not fish, oh. but you're gonna get a couple pizzas, and they're pretty good too. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, you I betcha. Like Palermo's. Yeah, they're great. Thank, thanks for participating. Yeah. So for me, for me. There's rarely bad fish fries, but for me, the the perfect fish fry, it, it's perch, it's a good potato pancake, and it's creamy coleslaw. I'm not really kind of. I mean, I'll take the other kind. It's that. And you're for again. I, I'm not. I'm not the brandy old fashioned. But give me give me a wild turkey bourbon old fashioned, and I'll I will be extremely happy. Okay, let's. Uh, poor man's and Sullivan best perch. Light light breading, always fresh and hot. Jeff, for me, it's any little hole in the wall place that has good lightly battered pan fried bluegill or perch. Lots of them up north. That is. It is one of the fun things about Wisconsin because, especially during Lent, you, you find 
all these different places and these little taverns that they typically maybe don't serve food. If they serve food, it's you know it's a, it's a pizza that they do in a toaster oven. But then on Fridays they open up the kitchen and um, there you go, Jeff. For me, you got to also have rye bread. Well, of course you have rye bread, Jeff. The Phoenix and Heartland has a great fish fry, Jeff. For me, it's the Golden Mask on Okachi Lake. They have perch. It is very. Very good. Jeff, St. Sebastian Church, choice of baked or beer-battered fried cod, the best homemade shrimp chowder. Oh, see, that that's, ah, I'm, I'm sorry, I've neglected this. That's right. For me, the perfect fish fry, it starts, for me, it's a cup of uh, New England clam chowder. Cup of clam chowder, you know, a good clam chowder with the, the big clams in them and stuff. Jeff, the best fish fries are the 5 o'clock club in Pewaukee and MJ Stevens. Uh, that's what the last caller was talking about. Both places, the fish is crispy, not greasy, plus they have great tartar sauce. Yeah, we love tartar sauce. There's no question. Jeff, it's an unpopular opinion, but for me, Culver's fish fry is the best. Let me say this. As somebody who considers himself to be a little bit of a fish fry aficionado, I think... I think Culver's is good. I, I mean, I think Culver's does a good job for what for what it is. Um, and I will a few times a year if it's one of those deals where I, I'm on my own or not going out on a Friday night or something. I will I will stop off and I will get Culver's because I think you know I think they do a very very good job with this. Um, Let's see, the hitching post in Colesville. The perch is absolutely outstanding. Well, here's one, Jeff. It's got to be Kegels Inn, 59th and National in West Dallas. Many outstanding fish fry options, including perch. It's delicious. Yeah, Kegels is just an institution. It's a German restaurant, if you haven't been there. And, I mean, and typically people would go for German food, except on Fridays they they fish fry and it's exactly right. It's one of the classic fish fries. You get the coleslaw in in the the, the paper cup, um, and you have your choice of all different types of, of fish, ranging from bluegill to perch to haddock to cod. Um, I haven't been back there in ages, but we you know we we would go there on occasions. Just absolutely. Um, absolutely loved it. Bridget in Port Washington. Bridget, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I am well, except this topic is making me hungry. I know, me too. But I have to <laughs> just say, I kind of agreed with you uh, a couple calls ago. For me, a lot of the places we go to, uh, you know, the fish is great. But it's for us, our choice is always about do you serve potato pancakes <laughs> and are you going to offer the clam chowder and are you going to have good coleslaw and the quality of your tartar sauce. And we uh-huh. used to go to Judy's up in Oostburg. Unfortunately, the past two times we've driven up there, they've been closed on Friday nights. So we've been forced to kind of call around, try to find the places that we would think would be good. Lake Church Inn. In Lake Church, it's between Port and Belgium. is very good. Yep. Um, there, there's several good ones. Uh, Seven Hills up in Port Washington, they offer a right. great fish fry. But it's for me, it's all about the size. And I right. lived in Minnesota for 10 years, and I couldn't wait to get home to Wisconsin, where they knew Just how to make that. all the Absolutely. size. Absolutely. 
No, Bridget, thanks for calling. It sounds like you and I would, would enjoy ourselves as well. Um, if you ask me where do I go, well, my, my go-to place is a place in Mequon called the Rangeline Inn. We go there. They, have, they always have perch. They have a couple other options, but they always have perch, and I just absolutely love that. So that's my go-to place. But there's a, a lot of other places, and it, it's fun to try all these different places. Jeff, for me, my wife, the perfect fish fry is three-piece cod, marble rye, coleslaw, and French fries, not potato pancakes. I like to wash it down with a nice tall hacker's shore brow, and the place that I like to do that is McGinn's on Blue Mound Road. Jeff, check out Queen of Apostles Church in Pewaukee. Jeff, check out the 5 o'clock club in Pewaukee. Okay, bottom line is, and we're swamped with this, where, wherever you go for your fish fry on Friday night, just enjoy it and understand that this is one of the things that bring us together because I don't care what your politics are. I don't care whether you root for the Cubs or the Brewers or whatever. All I know is on Fridays, the one thing that brings us together is we should all love fish fries.